As previously noted, Peter wrote this epistle to believers scattered throughout Asia Minor as a result of the rising persecution against Christianity. Because they were scattered and suffering, these believers were lonely and tempted to sin. Thus, Peter wrote to encourage them to remain faithful while scattered and suffering amid a hostile world because they had a living hope. Additionally, Peter exhorted them to be prepared, be obedient, and be holy. The temptation to escape suffering by adapting to the surrounding pagan culture was tremendous. Hence, they needed to keep their minds spiritually focused, striving to be imitators of God and His holiness. God had set them apart morally, society had set them apart culturally, and so they needed to live as such, set apart. The command to be holy would steel them against the suffering and the temptation to sin. Now Peter gives another command, love one another. He gives this command to help them combat the loneliness of being scattered. In 1 Peter 1, 22-25, Peter enunciates the idea that though scattered, they are still a family, brothers and sisters in Christ. As such, he exhorts them to demonstrate sacrificial and brotherly love towards one another because they are purified and born again. These believers are scattered but loving one another. Being scattered did not hinder them from loving one another. Instead, it made the commandment all the more important. Now, the command to love one another is based on two causal participles. You have purified your souls, in verse 22, and you have been born again, in verse 23. The love that is to be demonstrated amongst believers will only occur when there has been spiritual rebirth and moral transformation. So the basis for loving one another is twofold. First, they have purified their souls. Secondly, they have been born again. So let's look at verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls. The fundamental basis of loving one another is that you have purified your souls. Now believers are purified or holy because of the obedience to the truth. In Greek, truth has a definite article which indicates that the truth to which Peter refers is the gospel. Obedience means to listen and submit to that which is needed. And as in 1 Peter 1, 2, obedience to the truth refers to the obedience of faith, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, Romans 1, 5. But now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to what? The obedience of faith, Romans 16, 26. Obedience of faith, or obedience to the truth, is listening and submitting to the gospel. Faith is an act of obedience because the call to salvation is the commandment of the eternal God to repent and believe. Therefore, purification begins with salvation. Now, the term purified means to be cleansed from defilement. It's derived from the root word hagias, meaning holy or sacred. Purified is used throughout the Septuagint, the Old Testament uh, Greek translation, the Gospels and Acts, to refer to a ceremonial ritual 
by which someone consecrates or purifies themselves to God. That is, sets themselves apart to God. Acts 19.10, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them or purify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. John 11.55, now the Passover of the Jews was near and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. <clears throat> Acts 21.26, then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Now these purification rituals involved washing in water. Sometimes just the hands were washed, and other times it required full immersion into the water. For the early church, water baptism was the ritual by which believers publicly consecrated or purified themselves. They gave public witness to the fact that they were set apart to God. Acts 2, 37-38. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 37 to 38. Acts 8, 12. And when they believed, Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, men and women alike. My personal favorite, Acts 8, 36 to 38. As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He ordered the chariot to stop. And they, that's Peter and Philip, or excuse me, Philip and the eunuch, they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now there's a case where it's just three people, the eunuch, the chariot driver, and Philip. And they went and were baptized. While believers are inwardly set apart to God at the moment of salvation, baptism outwardly demonstrates that God has consecrated or purified them. The second basis for loving one another is that you have been born again. Verses 23 to 25 of 1 Peter 1. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of a grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. The second basis for loving one another is that you have been born again. Now, born again comes from two Greek terms, ana meaning again, and ganao meaning to beget. Hence, the terms mean to beget again, to rebirth, or to regenerate. The perfect tense of born again signifies that this rebirth happened in the past, but it has ongoing consequences. Now, all humanity was born of perishable seed. Perishable seed refers to the process of human gestation. From the moment life is conceived, sin is present. And because of sin, human life is subject to decay and eventual death. Hence, it is perishable. 
Believers, however, are those who have been born again or born a second time of imperishable seed. And the imperishable seed comes from the Holy Spirit. John 3, 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Titus 3, 5. He saved us according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The word regeneration there is the same term we have here for born again, by the washing of being born again and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Those who are born of the Spirit are not characterized by sin because God's seed dwells in them, 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. The instrument or seed by which the Holy Spirit accomplishes this new birth or regeneration is the living and enduring Word of God. That it is living means that God's Word is eternal and it offers life. Enduring describes God's Word as permanent and unchanging. That God's Word does not change means that it is as relevant today as when it was first penned. To support the fact that God's word is eternal and unchanging, Peter quotes from Isaiah 40, 6 to 8. Now, again, some of your translation, uh, you may note that all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You'll notice that's all in capital letters. The reason for that is because it's a quote from the Old Testament. It's a quote from Isaiah 46 to 8. Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8. Now, interestingly, Peter quotes Isaiah more than any other Old Testament book. Isaiah 46 to 8 marks Isaiah's prophecy, whereby God promises to redeem his people from exile, where they have been scattered and were suffering. Hear the words of Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Israel in exile had lost all the structures and institutions which identified them as a community. As such, these are words of comfort to a people scattered and suffering, both in Peter's day and in our day. E.G. Zelwyn states, Every leading thought here in Isaiah 40 fits in with what our author of 1 Peter has been saying. He too is addressing readers who are exiled and oppressed. And he has the same message for them, the contrast between the perishability of all mortal things and the incorruptibility of the Christian inheritance and hope. The passage quoted is therefore the focal point of a much longer passage, which must have been often present in the apostles' mind. Now note here the quote begins with the phrase, All flesh is like grass. The term all flesh refers to the entirety of humanity. Regarding grass in the ancient Near East where wood was scarce, grass was used as fuel. Matthew 6.30 If God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? As such, grass is a temporary thing. It withers. One day it's growing in the field. The next day it was fuel in the furnace. That every member of the human race is like grass means that our lives are temporary. Psalm 103.15 As for man, his days are like grass, 
as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. Look at the next phrase. All its glory, like the flower of grass, parallels the previous phrase. Glory refers to the flower's beauty. An individual's glory, our glory, is wrapped up in our pursuits and achievements. James 1.11, For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So to the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, in the midst of his glories, will fade away. So just as the grass is temporary, so the beauty of the flower is temporary. It falls off the stem. Like the fading beauty of a flower, our pursuits and achievements are temporary and will perish. Peter uses the pictures of withering grass and fading flowers to highlight the contrast between our temporal nature and the eternal enduring nature of God's word. Again, quoting Isaiah, Peter declares the word of the Lord endures forever. That God's word endures for all times is a comfort for those scattered and suffering because it means that God will keep his word. God protected his people and his promises do not fail in times of exile. Today, we can face the hostilities of this pagan world knowing that God will deliver us as he has done for previous believers who were scattered and suffering. Now interestingly, Isaiah 40 verse 8 states that the word of our God, the word of our God. Now God is the English translation of the Hebrew divine title Elohim. Nevertheless, when Peter quotes Isaiah 48, he states the word of the Lord. Now the term Lord here, kurios, is the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. Now, why was the scripture changed from God, Elohim, in Isaiah, to the Lord, Yahweh, in 1 Peter? Also, is Peter guilty of changing the scripture, which would have placed him under a divine curse? Now, as to the second question, the short answer is that Peter was not guilty of changing the scriptures. While it's undoubtedly a change, we must remember that Peter wrote this epistle under the superintendency of the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1, 20-21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Rather than producing the Scriptures on their own, the human writers were moved by the Holy Spirit. Moved by the Holy Spirit means that they were led, directed, or carried along by the Holy Spirit. This moving is what is known as the superintending or divine directing of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit communicated His words to human writers, who in turn wrote down what was spoken to them. Therefore, it was not Peter who changed the term from Elohim to Yahweh, but the Holy Spirit. Regarding the first question, the change has a significant purpose. D. Edmund Hybert states that throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh was, quote, the self-disclosed name of the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, Jehovah. 
In the New Testament, it is a standard designation for Jesus Christ. Thus, for Peter's Jewish readers, the phrase, the word of the Lord, carried four essential truths. First, they understood that Jesus Christ was Yahweh in the flesh. Second, they would have understood the phrase to mean the word of Christ. Consider Romans 10:17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Third, they would have understood that the word of Christ was identical to the word of God. And fourth, they would have understood that by substituting Jesus Christ for God, the text established the deity of Christ. Peter continues that this is the word that was preached to you. The term preached, evangelizo, refers to the bold exposition of the gospel. Peter's use of this term, evangelizo, would have been influenced by the use of good news, evangelizo, in Isaiah 40, verse 9, the very next verse. O Zion, bearer of good news, or bearer of the gospel, lift up your voice mightily. O Jerusalem, bearer of good news, or bearer of the gospel, lift it up, do not fear. A literal translation of this text would be then, this word is the gospel that was preached to you. This is the word refers primarily to Isaiah and the Old Testament scriptures. Therefore, the apostles preached the gospel from Isaiah and the rest of the Old Testament. That the Old Testament is called the word of Christ and the apostles preached the gospel from and quoted the Old Testament demonstrates its validity and authority for us as believers today. Furthermore, because the word of God is eternal and enduring, means that those who have received it as a seed via the gospel have received eternal and enduring life. The basis for loving one another is twofold. One, you've been born again, and two, you've been purified. Now you all have to answer that question. Before you can obey the command to love one another, you have to ask yourself, have you been born again? Have you been regenerated? Have you been born from above? And are you purified? Have you obeyed the command to repent and believe. Now, understand, obviously, that goes hand in hand with being born again. You cannot be born from above unless you have repented and believed, unless you have obeyed the faith or obeyed the truth. And then, have you been baptized? Now, again, baptism doesn't save, but it's the outward demonstration. It's the testimony to others that, hey, I've been consecrated or set apart or purified to God. Now, because we have been born again, and because we are purified, now here's the command to love one another. To love one another. We're going to go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22 and look at the method of loving one another. The method of loving one another. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren... Fervently love one another from the heart. Because believers have purified their souls and have been born again, they are to love one another. 
Jesus taught the disciples uh, that they were to love one another. John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. 1 John 3, 11 and 23, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. Though Jesus called loving one another a new commandment, it was in fact an old commandment. Leviticus 19.18 you, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Then in what ways was the commandment new? First, it was new in his emphasis. Jesus placed loving others on equal ground with loving God. Matthew 22, 37 to 40. He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second great and foremost commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. Matthew 22, 37 to 40. So first, it was new in its emphasis. Second, it was new in its quality. Jesus' demonstration of love is now the standard for loving one another. Third, it was new in its extent. Jesus used the parable of the Good Samaritan to illustrate that loving others extends beyond ethnicity or religion. And using Jesus' teaching, Peter now outlines four aspects of love that are to be evident amongst believers. And we need to be asking ourselves, are these aspects of love evident in our lives? First, we are to love sacrificially. We are to love sacrificially. That's the first aspect of love one another, to love sacrificially. The term love in the command, love one another, is agapao. Agape love, or the verbal form agapao, is sacrificially seeking the highest good of someone else with no expectation of anything in return. Let me state that again in case you missed it. Agape love. This love one another is a command to sacrificially seek the highest good of someone else with no expectation of anything in return. In other words, it's a love that sacrificially does something for someone else and doesn't get bent out of shape when it doesn't get a thank you or an equivalent action done in response. Church Father John Chrysostom stated, This is no common love, but that which cements us together and makes us cleave inseparably to one another and affects us as great and as perfect a union as though it were between limb and limb. In other words, it's not merely an expression of one's emotion, but one's volition. Agape is choosing to do good even towards the unlikable and unlovable. Think about that. It's easy to love the lovable or likable. It's difficult to love the unlikable and unlovable. 1 Corinthians 13 provides us a snapshot 
of agape love. It says that first it is patient. That means agape love does not retaliate when wronged. It is kind. Agape love responds generously to others' needs. Now remember that other includes the unlikable and unlovable. Agape love is not jealous. In other words, it's not envious of what another has. Agape love does not brag. It does not exhibit self-importance. Agape love is not arrogant. It's not proud or self-conceited. Agape love does not act unbecomingly. In other words, it behaves according to the acceptable standards of morality. Agape love does not seek its own. It's not self-serving, but selfless. It's not provoked. Agape love, that is, is not touchy, irritable, or sensitive to slights. Ooh, that, that, get, that gets a little touchy, doesn't it? It's not sensitive to slights. Oh, well, they didn't, they didn't thank me, so whoosh, on them, I'm not going to love them anymore. Agape love does not take into account a wrong. In other words, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Listen, we, we're always going to wrong each other, okay? Sometimes deliberately, sometimes uh, accidentally. But if someone has agape love, they're not keeping count of how many times you've done them dirty. How many times you've wronged them. That's not agape love. Agape love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. In other words, it doesn't take pleasure in another's faults or failures. Oh boy, look at how that guy failed. Oh man, look at everything wrong with that guy. That's not agape love. Agape love rejoices with truth. That is, it takes pleasure in what's true. Agape love bears all things. That is, it endures difficulties on behalf of someone else. Do you endure difficulties on behalf of someone else? If you're enduring difficulties because of someone else, guess what? That's agape love. Agape love believes all things. In other words, it's willing to think the best of others until proven wrong. Agape love hopes all things. It expects the best from others until proven wrong. Agape love endures all things. That is, it withstands all circumstances with courage. And agape love never fails. It does not come to an end. The most exceptional example of agape love is God himself. God sacrificed his own son to redeem sinful humanity. John 3.16 For God so loved agapao, the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Following his examples, you and I are to seek the highest good of all, even those who irritate, disturb, and embarrass us. Why? Well, 1 Peter 4, 8, quoting Proverbs 10, 12, says, Love, agape, covers a multitude of sins. Hence, sacrificial love, agape love, means showing tolerance for one another. Ephesians 4, 2, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Showing tolerance for is enduring something difficult or someone difficult or unpleasant. It conveys the idea of putting up with one another and enduring the faults of one another. Putting up with one another indicates that not everyone in the body of Christ is going to be compatible or likable. And yet they're the, they've been born again and they're purified. But we're not all compatible. Hence, the need to show tolerance for one another.
William MacDonald states that showing tolerance is, quote, making allowances for the faults and failures of others or differing personalities, abilities, and temperaments. And it's not a question of maintaining a facade of courtesy while inwardly seething with resentment. It means positive love to those who irritate, disturb, or embarrass. Showing tolerance takes humility, gentleness, and patience to tolerate someone else's faults and differing personalities. It requires stretching ourselves to respect the differences of the other person. Sometimes it means overlooking those differences, and sometimes showing tolerance for means forgiving others of their faults and foibles. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Colossians 3.13 Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. You know, in this day of free and frivolous love, believers, you and I must set the example of divine love. That is a sacrificial love that seeks the highest good of someone else with no expectation of anything in return. And you've got to ask yourself, are you exhibiting agape love? Think of a, a, of a quote-unquote believer who you don't get along with, whose personality clashes with yours, and ask yourself if you're able to love that person. Now, your, your answer probably is going to be, well, no, I don't want to love that person. That's why you've been commanded to love them anyway. Loving them doesn't mean agreeing with them. Loving doesn't mean that you're okay with a particular sin they may be committing. In fact, loving may be confronting that sin they're committing. But it means that you're willing to sacrifice yourself for the highest good of them with no expectation of anything in return. So agape love, love one another. It is sacrificial love. We're to love sacrificially. Secondly, the second aspect of love is that it is to be brotherly. Here the phrase, love of the brethren, translates the Greek term Philadelphia, which refers to love between siblings. Now at the moment of spiritual birth, believers, you and I, become part of the family of God. Therefore, we are to regard each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Brotherly love is always caring, even when confronting one's brother or sister, because we share a common bond. Brotherly love means that we are devoted to one another. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. Devotion to one another is not based on attraction or agreeableness. Brotherly love displays a genuine gratitude and respect for other believers by putting them first. Philippians 2.3 Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. That's what brotherly love looks like. It's by devotion to one another, it's by brotherly love, that the world will recognize 
that we are believers in Christ. John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Are you demonstrating not just sacrificial love, but brotherly love? Are you willing to display gratitude and respect for others by putting them first? Or are you putting yourself first? See, that again goes back to that sacrificial aspect. You're not doing it out of selfishness. You're not doing it out of conceit. You're humbling yourselves. You're not looking out for your own interest, but the interest of others. Brotherly love is putting the interest of your brother or sister ahead of your own interest. The third aspect of love, it is that it is to be done sincerely. It is to be done sincerely. This means it has to be genuine or without deceit or hypocrisy. Romans 12, 9, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. 2 Corinthians 6, 6, In purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. Now, Jesus is the personification of sincere or genuine love. He loved everyone, blind, crippled, lonely, poor, child, widowed, tax collector, soldier, even Pharisees. And His love was so authentic that he repudiated the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Matthew 6, 2, When you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites, the Pharisees do in the synagogues and in the street, so they may be honored by men. Hypocrisy comes from the Greek term hupokrites, or hupokrites, refers to a stage actor who plays a role. In the Septuagint, Hypocrites describes an ungodly person. A hypocrite is an ungodly person who tries to ensure others, excuse me, ensnare others in their lies and whose heart is filled with impurity and bitterness against God. Job 34.30 So the godless, the hypocrites, men, the hypocrite men, would not rule nor be snares of the people. Job 36, 13, But the godless, the hypocrites in heart, lay up anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. By referring to the Pharisees as hypocrites, he was not only calling them out for their insincerity, but he equated them with the impure and bitter ungodly. We are to love sincerely. We are to love in deed and truth not with pretense or deceit. 1 John 3.18 Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. See, love is more than a claim or a feeling. It is an action done in truth, i.e. without pretense or deceit. It does not gush platitudes to a person's face while disparaging them behind their back. Sincere or genuine love is not motivated by greed, nor does it seek to manipulate for personal gain. It is loving others in the same manner that God loves them. Are we exhibiting that kind of love? Or are you simply loving, quote-unquote, someone because you're trying to manipulate them or you're trying to pull something over on them? Your love needs to be sincere. It needs to be without hypocrisy, without pretense, and without deceit. The fourth aspect of love is that it's to be done fervently. 
has to be done fervently. Fervently means to be marked by care and intense, persistent effort. It's an athletic term that characterizes an athlete using all of their strength to compete. In essence, to love fervently requires all of one's strength. And the depth of fervently is clarified here by the phrase, from the heart, which means out of one's emotion. Thus, we are to love one another with an intense, persistent physical effort and emotion. Luke uses the term fervently twice to describe once Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane and two, the prayers that were made for Peter while he was imprisoned. Luke 24, 44, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Acts 12, 5, So Peter was kept in prison, but in prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. The point is that both Jesus' prayer and the prayer of the believers were intense and persistent. Believers today would do well to pattern such behavior in their prayers for one another. Are your prayers for each other intense? Are they emotional? Are they filled with effort? Or is it just a ho-hum attitude, yeah, pray for so-and-so and move on? Our prayers need to be fervent. Our love for one another needs to be fervent. Later in his epistle, Peter commands believers to keep fervent in their love for one another. 1 Peter 4.8 And above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. The term keep there is an imperative denoting a command. They are to manifest a particular position or activity. That is, we are to maintain intense, persistent effort and emotion in loving one another. And so the method of loving one another is to love one another sacrificially. It's to love one another brotherly. It's to love one another fervently. And it's to love one another sincerely. Why? Because we have been born again and purified. Now the text doesn't say to love one another when it's convenient or beneficial. Remember, this command was given to those who were scattered and suffering. When the early church was scattered, you know what? They kept praying, they kept loving, kept serving, and kept proclaiming Jesus. And as we bring this message to a close, I'd like to give you several ways in which we can love one another while we're scattered. Several ways we can love one another while we are scattered. First, we can love one another by following governmental and health care recommendations. You see, loving one another is not wanting to expose one another to a virus. While many of the mandated precautions taken to protect, protect those who are more susceptible are inconvenient, we need to set the example. Remember, sacrificial love seeks the highest good of someone else. Second, we can love one another by not spreading misinformation. Proverbs 15.2 The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. We can love one another by not spreading misinformation. Unless you're a medical expert, 
you do well to defer to the medical experts. We are commanded to lovingly speak the truth and refrain from circulating rumors and opinions. Ephesians 4, 15 and 29. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Speaking the truth means reading the entire article and verifying it comes from a trustworthy source. Third, we can love one another by fervently praying. We can be praying for healthcare workers and their families, fervently. We can be praying for those who've been touched by this virus and their families, fervently. We can pray for those who are more susceptible, fervently. We need to pray for the needs of fellow believers, fervently. You know, the more effort and emotion you put into praying for others, the less focused you'll be on your own perceived inconveniences. Fourth, we need to love one another by showing grace. We need to love one another by showing grace. As I've said before, there are many opinions about masks and social distancing and when it's safe to meet together. Ephesians 4.3 tells us that as believers we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That means when there are differences of opinions on non-theological issues, we are to act according to Ephesians 4.2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And finally, number five, we can love one another through acts of encouragement and compassion. Philippians 2.1 and 2, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation in love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Listen, make a call, send an email or text message, write a letter to encourage someone, share a verse of scripture with someone, ease someone's burden by making a meal, or dropping off some groceries. Look for needs and take the opportunity to meet those needs. Remember, my friends, though we're scattered, we're still a family, and as such, let's strive to demonstrate that sacrificial and brotherly love to one another in the midst of a pagan and hostile world. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank and praise you for the text that you've given to us. A difficult command at times just as being holy is a difficult command at times. But yet, Lord, it's a command for us today. More now today than ever, because, Father, it's harder to love when we're apart than when we're together. Father, I pray that we would examine ourselves and that, Father, we would look at how we love or don't love, ask ourselves why we love or don't love, and then, Father... Once we commit ourselves to obey that command to love one another, that we would constantly be examining that love to make sure that it is sacrificial. That, Father, we're willing to lay aside our wants and our desires for the good of someone else, even without expecting anything in return. That, Father, as we examine our love, that we would be sure that it's brotherly love. We're not loving out of agreeableness or out of attractiveness, but, Father, we're, we're loving one another because we're part of the family of God. 
were members of the same body. Some might be arms, some might be legs, some might be fingers, some might be toes, but we're all part of the body of Christ. Father, as we examine our love, that it would be sincere. That, Father, what drives us to love one another is sincerity, genuineness, but not hypocrisy. That we're not doing it because we're trying to manipulate a situation, we're trying to manipulate an individual, but, Father, that we're demonstrating love because, again, we want to see them excel. We want to see them do well. We want the highest good for the other person. Father, help us to put others' interests above our own. And Father, may our love be fervent. Lord, may we put some effort and emotion into it rather than being cold, callous, and disconnected. And so, Father, as we close, I pray that you might help us to this end, to love one another, even while scattered. We pray in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.